Welcome back to No Sleep Till Gandhara. I'm your host, Mike. This is a podcast where I'm reading through the journey to the West for the first time and taking notes and then coming here to report back about the things that I found interesting. We're still in the introduction. We're going to be here for some time. It's 96 pages long and I'm like six pages in, so (laughs) deal with it. Uh, this next section that I'm going to go through took me down. It had a word, almost every sentence I had to look up and research further. And I'm going to put links to the resources I looked up to help me in the show notes. So feel free to look at those. And uh, I'm, I'm doing my best. So if you have any corrections or something you think I missed... I'm definitely going to mess up pronouncing things. Uh, if you would like to email me, you can do that at nosleepjourney at gmail.com. Okay, so last time we talked about the primary reason that Xuanzang made his famous pilgrimage to India, which was to resolve some perceived contradictions in the foundational texts of his school of Buddhism. And those were about whether or not all men were capable of the Buddha nature and thus reaching enlightenment and salvation. And he didn't think that question was going to be answered unless he could go to the source and read the original version of the text in India, because he believed that it was based on mistranslations. He made an application to go make the make the journey but his travel was refused. The second emperor of the Tang dynasty had just assumed his title, and this ascension had come following the famous incident of Zhuangwu Gate. That was where the this, the second emperor that I'm talking about ambushed 
and murdered his two brothers and possibly even his own father to usurp the throne. And this helps explain, according to Anthony, the editor and translator who's writing this introduction, he says this helps explain why travel to the Western regions was not permitted, why Xuanzang's application was rejected, was because that's where those murders were committed. And so the soldiers stationed there and the court who were loyal to the victims were suspicious of anyone headed in that direction. I'm doing a little bit of editorializing there because it's not worded very clearly by Anthony in this introduction. So that's my interpretation of what he has written. Um, I did find a documentary by the Chinese government on YouTube, and I'm going to post that in the show notes. So I'm going to look at it, watch that later to find out more. But that's as, that's as far as I could get for right now. So then... Xuanzang defied the imperial prohibition and crossed the border out of Tang territory through several fortified passes. That made him guilty of high treason and liable to immediate execution if caught. The, the way he did that was he joined a merchant caravan in secret. And this was probably around the year 627. In India, Xuanzang traveled through many cities until he finally reached the Magadra kingdom of mid-India, which is now Bodhgaya, around the year 631. He studied at the great Nalanda monastery for a cumulative five years. And I say that because it wasn't five years in a row. He, he left many times and came back many times. During the time he wasn't there, he was traveling around India, visiting sacred sites and preaching about the Dharma to kings, priests, and common people. Indian Buddhists bestowed upon him the titles Mahayana Deva, which Anthony translates as the celestial being of the great vehicle, and Muska Deva, the celestial being of deliverance. After 16 years, now in the year 643, he began his trip back home to China. While en route, he wrote a request for an imperial pardon for having left without permission. And since the emperor, Taizong, credited his rise to power to the support of Buddhists, which, side note, I find funny because we just learned that it was because he murdered his family that he rose to power. Uh, nevertheless, he absolved Xuanzang. Xuanzang arrived in the capital of Chang'an in the year 645, bearing over 600 Buddhist scriptures. And when he met with the emperor, the emperor was perhaps predictably not interested in the Buddhist doctrinal details that Xuanzang returned with, but instead with the rulers, climate, products, and customs of India to the west of the snowy peaks. Taizong was so impressed with Xuanzang's knowledge of foreign culture that he offered him a court appointment 
Shanzong declined, declaring his resolve to devote his life to translating the sutras and sastras he returned with. Shanzong spent the next 19 years of his life translating and writing. He died in around 664, when he was about 70 years old. By that time, he had completed translating 75 scriptures, which were in 1,347 scroll volumes, including the Yogacarya Bhumisastra, which we talked about last episode. That was the foundational text of his school of Buddhism that set him on his journey. His most famous writings were Treatise on the Establishment of the Consciousness-Only System, which synthesized the Ten Commentaries of the Trimska by Vasubandhu, and his Travelogue, which was dictated to his disciple Bianji, which was called the Da Tong Jiyo Ji. The Record of the Great Tongs Western Territories, which is sometimes referred to as the first Chinese work of geography. As I take it, that's Anthony's summary of Xuanzang's life. And then he goes on and starts talking about how the historical person and historical pilgrimage went from a topic of historical record and turned into the mythical fantasy novel published in 1592, which is, once we get through the introduction, what the actual novel is. So I'm, I'm starting now getting into that description. I'm not going to get very far here, but that, I think, is what the next section of the introduction is that we're going to get into. So, as a brief introduction to that, Xuanzang's contemporary biographers were already blending fact and fantasy when recounting his exploits. Anthony says here that the story of Xuanzang's life was celebrated by classical and demotic literary writings. I think what Anthony's doing here is trying to provide us with a reason why Xuanzang's story in particular became this myth and this legend that has survived for so long. This one sentence of that his life was celebrated by classical and demotic literary writings. And he just moves on very quickly from that. But I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so I had to look it up. And at first, demotic writings took me to capital D demotic writings, which took me into ancient Egypt. But that is different from what Anthony is talking about here. I, as as far as I can gather. So I found an article talking about this, which I, again, I'll link in the show notes. So 
specifically in the Buddhist Chinese context of demote classical and demotic literary writings. I think what Anthony is referring to here is that there was a distinction between the language that was written down and preserved in scrolls and the language that people spoke in their everyday life. And the things that were preserved were not secular. They, they were not those parts of everyday life. They were religious in nature. And even though there were scrolls and writing about everyday life of common people, those were not preserved and they were just left to degrade and be disposable. Part of the purpose of these scrolls was for entertainment. And this was part of like a, the oral tradition of storytelling would, ha- would take place. And the scrolls were copied by students and they had pictures and um, this article says that the most outstanding practitioners for delivering these stories were women from secular society. The other aspect of these is that the language that was written in these scrolls was called literary Sinitic also called classical Chinese. And this was an artificial language that only roughly 2% of the population could read. And that was because you had to afford to devote years of study in order to do so. And it wasn't until the advent of Buddhism in China, that this demotic style of writing changed because the Buddhists made a purposeful effort to make themselves understandable by the common people and preach to the common people, that the this demotic writing changed to be closer to the everyday speech spoken by common people. Um, I'll just read a passage here from this article, which connected the dots for me here. So, quote, Thus, with the Buddhist sanctioning of the written vernacular, a sequence of revolutionary developments occurred that radically transformed Chinese literature for all time. Moreover, hand-in-hand with vernacularization, came other Buddhist-inspired developments in Chinese literature. Aside from Buddhist topics, such as the Tang monk Xuanzang's pilgrimage to India that was immortalized in the Ming Dynasty novel Shi Ji, the very notion that fiction was something fabricated out of whole cloth, something created by the mind of the author, can be traced to Buddhist sources. Prior to the advent of Buddhism, there was no full-blown fiction in the sense that it was something made up in China. Instead, there were only short anecdotes, tales based on historical events, 
and what were known in the Six Dynasties period as accounts of abnormalities. Even the latter were thought to be based squarely on events that had really happened. Hence, the role of the author was merely to record some extraordinary incident. During the Tang Dynasty, there arose a genre called Chronicles of the Strange. And like the accounts of abnormalities, these were written in literary synitic and maintained the pretense that they were relating an incident or series of incidents that had actually transpired. <laughs> so, again, what I'm taking away from this is that the Indian Buddhist influence on the Tang period Buddhists that were Shanzong's contemporaries contributed to Shanzong's story being part of these stories that were being told by everyday people as entertainment because it had the pretext of a religious topic with additional fantastical elements that are being told for entertainment and performed as part of the oral storytelling tradition and being acted out in dramas. And so I think that is what Anthony is trying to get across by saying that Xuanzang's life was celebrated by classical and demotic literary writings and, and that that contributed to the popularization of his story and why it endured for so long. Something that I thought was really cool from this article also that I'll mention before I move on is that because the secular scrolls were not deemed worthy of preservation and most of them were left to disintegrate, there were some monasteries that were in caves, the Dunhuang cave monasteries, the libraries there deemed that all this stuff was worthy of protection. And because that was in a desert region with a dry climate, that was ideal for preserving these manuscripts. And by sheer chance, this article says, they were placed in a side cave in the early years of the 11th century, where they, were, where they were sealed up, plastered over with wall paintings, and forgotten for 10 centuries. When they were rediscovered at the beginning of the 20th century, it was as though a time capsule had been opened, preserving unchanged a slice of life, thought, and art from the Tang period and the Five Dynasties period in China. So from the years 618 through 960. So I thought that was pretty incredible. Going back to what Anthony wrote in the introduction now, he says that there have been a series of visual depictions of imagined versions of Xuanzang's pilgrimage that have been found on wall murals and relief sculptures dating back to the late Tang period, around that same 
time period that article was just talking about finding these scrolls from around the year 923. And so with all this in mind, the other takeaway that Anthony wants to get across to us here is that there is only the most tenuous relationship between the historical person, Xuanzang, and the story of Xuanzang that's told in the 100-chapter narrative published in 1592. That is Ji, the record of the westward journey, which is what this book is a translation of. And that's it for this week. That's as much information as my brain could handle for one week, even though I find it really fun researching these things. So next time we are going to talk more about the history of the popularity of Xuanzang's story and the writing of the novel. I, I read ahead just a little bit and that seemed to be the overall topic of the next couple pages. So looking forward to that. Hope you'll join me next time. If you would, again, if you would like to email me, you can do that at nosleepjourney at gmail.com. If you would like to see and hear more from me, you could go to my website, michaelmccubbin.com. Link will be below in the show notes. So thanks for joining me. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'll see you right here next time on No Sleep Till Gondara.